It's a privilege to be together as a church. Um, my daughter, she just started working at a place called City of Hope, really a special place, and um, she was saying that it is neat as people come to that hospital with, with uh, cancer. She'll meet people who come for the first time, and they come, and they're just so grateful for a place where there is a little bit of hope. And I was thinking just about the local church. That's a good name for a local church as well, City of Hope, place of hope that we are uh, sinners, and we come here to hear this great gospel about uh, true hope, that there is a savior for sinners uh, who provides complete forgiveness. But not only that, he is in the process of changing us and making us beautiful. We're so unworthy of God's love, but God has loved us and provided salvation for us as in, and is in the process of making us more and more like his son. And he does that in all kinds of ways. He does that through the relationships we have with one another here at church. I'm so grateful for how different we can be and how the Lord uses our conversations to push us and uh, help us think more clearly about our life and about Christ. He also does that through books. So I'm really uh, excited. We're going to begin a uh, sort of a church resource center in the back. I um, put that um, bookshelf together this week and just so sad. I was so excited for it to be perfect because I'm very bad at making things. And then I came today and it was broken. So very humble before my poor, my wife, I thought I, I'm going to show her I made something and then it was uh, broken. But we, I uh, did put, and it's Ikea. I mean, that's not even that hard, but um, yeah, the Lord humbles us. But we uh, are going to have books on, uh, on a bookshelf back there that uh, are books that meant a lot to the elders, uh, books that we think would be, so it's not going to be like this massive thing, but it will be different books that uh, we think uh, God's used to impact us or we think that will be helpful for you as a church. And so you can do what you want. You can take a book. You can think of it like a library. You can think of it like a idea center where you take a picture and buy it on Amazon. You could take it and donate it. You could uh, donate uh, donate something uh, to the church as a result. But it's uh, my. I already know my daughter took a couple books and somebody else took a book. So you'll want to get back there while you have a chance while there still are, are books there. Just uh, try to read it. That would be great. But one of the ways the Lord changes us is through books. And of course, another way that the Lord changes us and makes us like Jesus is through his word. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 8, we are going to look at uh, verses 22 through uh, 25 and talk about what is it really that keeps you from hearing God's word and uh, doing it with the uh, emphasis on doing it, not just hearing, but doing it obeying, and really joyfully obeying, too. We're going to look at the the reason that we're often tempted to give, and then what Jesus thinks of that. And I want to talk about what really keeps you from joyfully and confidently obeying Jesus, because most of us would know, I think, that we're supposed to obey Jesus, that part of being a follower of Jesus means actually being willing to follow Jesus. And if you've been coming the past couple weeks, you know that Jesus has been putting a big old exclamation point on that, beginning back in Luke chapter 6, where he's talking to these really religious people and asking them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
And he's warning them there, actually, because they feel kind of privileged and feel like their relationship with God is all fine. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. You, you need to start responding to my word. Otherwise, judgment. And historically, we know, of course, that Jesus is talking here to Israel, this nation that God's been focusing on for thousands of years up to this point and preparing for this savior that he's going to send. And here Jesus is coming and saying, that savior is here, that savior is me, but they need to respond to what he's saying. Otherwise, judgment. They can't just listen, they have to obey. And yet it's a little crazy because as we keep reading, we see that even though he warned them like that so clearly and so straightforwardly, they don't start responding. And so by chapter eight, Jesus actually starts changing his approach and starts speaking in parables. And when his disciples ask him why, he says that one of the reasons he's doing that is to emphasize the danger these people are in if they don't start responding. It's like he's imitating the ministry of this prophet Isaiah who came many years before who was preaching and warning Israel right before they went into exile as a sign that if they don't start listening to him correctly, the same thing is going to happen to them again. And of course, the disciples were a little confused by that. This was not how they thought it was supposed to happen. And so Jesus explains the parable he tells. Where you remember, I think that Jesus was talking about these different kinds of soils, bad soils, and the good soil. And he says, the difference between them is that the good soil holds fast to his word and bears fruit. And in a sense, that's like a challenge as Jesus is going around preaching. You want to be the good soil. Take care how you hear, because this is what actually reveals the state of your relationship with Jesus. And to top it all off, Jesus then uses this kind of shocking illustration at the end of that section in chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus is preaching or teaching somewhere, and they bring Jesus' mother and brothers to him, and they say, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And Jesus is like, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And Jesus is not unkind, but it might have felt like it in that moment for a minute as Jesus' mother and brothers are standing outside. But he's using this moment to make a really important point that was very hard for people to get, which was that it is not enough for them to just be Jewish. They couldn't just count on that because who actually is Jesus's family? It's not just a certain ethnic group of people. It's those who hear his word and do it. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which puts the importance of obedience on a, on a high level, obviously. And really, obedience only makes sense given the message that Jesus came proclaiming as well. If you look at the message, this is the response that you would expect if, if you heard it, obedience. And not just obedience, joyful obedience. That's the thing, joyful obedience. Because Luke's told us that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter four, verse 43. Luke chapter six, verse 20. Luke chapter eight, verse one. He keeps stressing that and he, and he keeps stressing that because he doesn't want us to miss how unique Jesus' message is. 
He doesn't want us to miss that Jesus did not come just like every other religious teacher out there telling you more things to do. He came instead talking about what he was going to do. He comes preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, preaching about how he was going to fulfill the promises God made in the Old Testament, which are these absolutely huge promises about how God is going to fix himself what man has broken and deal with the effects of sin and about how he's going to make a way for us to be forgiven and for our relationship with God to be restored and about how he's going to rescue his people from their sins and restore peace and justice and righteousness and harmony and joy to this entire universe. It's like Jesus comes looking at these problems that we see everywhere, these problems in our relationship with the world, these problems in our relationship with one another, and these problems in our, our relationship with God, and says, good news. I come with good news because God the Father has sent me to fix them. Jesus basically comes into this world with his Bible in his hand, pointing down at the great promises written there and says, I am the one who's going to do this. I am the good news of the kingdom of God, which is obviously this huge, amazing, awesome announcement that should change our entire lives if we believe it. It demands some kind of response. I mean, we look at this message that Jesus came preaching and joyful obedience only makes sense. That's going to clearly be the fruit of faith if we believe that we have peace with God because of Jesus. If we believe that there is a purpose to this universe and it's bound up in Jesus. If we believe that we are going to be with God forever because of Jesus. If we believe that suffering only goes on so long and death is going to be defeated as a result of Jesus, if we believe that we are going to live forever in a perfect universe alongside of Jesus, how should we respond to Jesus? How would we respond to Jesus if we believe that? Obedience, no matter what Jesus says, anything Jesus says, our response should be to hear it and do it quickly and joyfully and courageously, right? Of course, right? Of course. And yet, you know, the reality is that all too often, it isn't our response. It's strange. Even though we know that we're supposed to obey, this is what disciples do. And even though we know that joyful obedience makes sense, this is what believing a gospel like that should produce Sometimes we're really hesitant about actually obeying. A lot of times you talk to Christians and they'll be like, I know, I know, I know. But you can tell it seems scary to them. It seems hard. They're not sure. They're not certain. And in spite of all this stuff that we've been talking about, in spite of the fact that they can articulate that themselves, they have reasons and those reasons feel valid. And I guess I, I want to look at this story in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, and ask to see, really, what is at the root of that uncertainty? What is it, really, that keeps us from joyfully and courageously obeying Jesus? Because I think we can see the answer we would normally give if we look at this 
story from the disciples' perspective, at least one big reason we're tempted to give ourselves, if we look at this from the disciples' perspective in that moment first, as it's happening, and then second, at how this story illustrates the perspective they could have been tempted to have later, looking back on what happened with Jesus. And it's the, it's the wrong answer both times from either perspective, but I think it's one that we tell ourselves all the time and that can feel really valid to us. Luke says, verse 22, one day, and he's going to give us the setting for the story, and that phrase, one day, is easy to skip over, I know, but it's one of the clues that Luke gives that we're beginning to look at something new. When he's shifting his focus a little, Luke usually puts something there to mark the time. Like chapter 8, verse 1, he says, soon afterward, or here he says, one day. And so Luke's just shown us something kind of shocking, or at least that would have been shocking to the people back then in that day, because he's shown us that Jesus is not going to save Israel regardless of their response to him. But he's going to save those who actually respond in faith to what he says, regardless really of their physical relationship to him. And after kind of putting that shocking statement out there, Luke transitions and says, one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. And I think that puts his disciples in bold print as we're reading, because it's starting to really mean something now. These are not just anyone following Jesus. These are people who are really wanting to hear Jesus's word and obey it. And I know I've always kind of pictured this as just Jesus getting into one boat with his 12 disciples. But if you think back to the beginning of Luke chapter 8, there are at least Jesus, the 12, and these women who are following along as well. And actually, if you read the story in the Gospel of Mark, you find that there are a number of boats here alongside whatever boat Jesus is getting in. And obviously, we don't know exactly how many, but Luke is telling us that these boats were filled with people who had made some kind of commitment to Jesus and that he could call Jesus' disciples, which is where I hope many of you find yourselves today as well. I know you're not in a physical boat with, with Jesus like these disciples were, but I'm hoping you've heard what Jesus has said and you've understood and you have believed and you've committed yourself to following him. And so it's kind of like spiritually you're in the boat with Jesus now. And yet I, I know that even though you have made that commitment to Jesus, it doesn't always mean that everything in your life is going to be easy. And the truth is, What's happening in your life might feel a little like what happened to these disciples in this story, because after they got into this boat and started following Jesus, Jesus falls asleep, verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, which, of course, doesn't sound like the world's biggest deal right away, Jesus falling asleep. In fact, it just sounds kind of ordinary, actually, which I think is part of the point. If you're going to see this whole thing from the disciples' perspective, it's important you see that at this particular moment, Jesus is looking pretty ordinary. I mean, it's hard not to when you're sleeping. I remember uh, sitting next to a pretty important preacher one time, and it was someone I really respected, and we were listening to a message where uh, someone else was preaching, and he was just so tired, this preacher I was sitting next to, that in the middle of this sermon, I heard this uh, sound that was quiet at first. It was like, ooh, ooh. And then I looked over at him, and his eyes were closed, and his mouth was open, and he was starting to snore, and he was just looking so ordinary, so, so frail, actually. He was older 
so, so human, you know, a little like how Jesus must have looked to the disciples here because he must have been absolutely exhausted because it seems like the minute he gets in the boat, he can't keep his eyes open. Who knows, maybe by this point his head was back and his mouth was open. Mark actually tells us he was in the stern of the boat, which is at the back of the boat, and he was asleep on a, on a cushion. And if you've been reading what Jesus has been doing, that's not really surprising because he's been teaching and preaching and serving and going nonstop to the point where there were times when he didn't even have an opportunity to eat. And so it's just very normal for him to get on this boat and feel absolutely exhausted. And yet, even though that's true, even though that's normal, even though that's ordinary, for the disciples, it seemed more like a problem at this moment, a crisis really, because as Jesus was sleeping, Luke tells us, verse 23, that a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And in other parts of Scripture, the lake that he's talking about is called the Sea of Galilee. But like a lot of places in this world, it had different names, like Lake Tiberias or Lake of Gennesaret. And names with lake at the front actually seem more appropriate than Sea of Galilee because it's only about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. It's a dream for me to take a trip to Israel together as a church someday and maybe see this lake. But it's not really that big, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's 64 square miles, which doesn't mean that much to me, but maybe to you. But maybe more helpful, they say it's about the size of Washington, uh, D.C. And so for lakes, it's big maybe, but not that big, though it's the largest freshwater lake in the nation of Israel. And it does have some things about it that are fairly unusual, one of them being that it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And so it's like 600 or 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by mountains. On the west are, are the, these hills of Galilee. On the east is something called a plateau, which is pretty high. And to the north are the mountains of Lebanon, which they say rise to about 3,000 feet above sea level, which, is, which means it's this kind of lake that is situated in a bowl-shaped valley. And what happens with the lake being so low and with all these high mountains surrounding it is that you've got these winds that are constantly sweeping through the mountains and picking up speed as they do. It's like they're kind of coming through a funnel. And they end up hitting the surface of the water on the lake and cause some pretty violent storms to rise up as a result pretty quickly. Like it looks nice and everything is fine and you say to your family, let's go for a boat ride. And then all of a sudden, it isn't. And it's actually pretty well known for its violent storms. Even now, I was reading about one storm on the Sea of Galilee back in the 90s that created something like 10-foot waves, which came crashing into one of the towns located on the shore, which seems to be what was happening here in Luke 8 as well. The word Luke uses for windstorm, he says, and a windstorm came down on the lake, could be translated whirlwind. And you know, the term that uh, Matthew uses is actually the Greek word seismos, which is connected to the English word for earthquake, obviously, seismic activity. It's almost like the disciples were experiencing an earthquake on the water. And you can imagine the waves. Luke tells us that the boat was filling with water and the disciples were in, in danger. One author even translates this verse, and they were overcome with water and they were being placed in real danger. And as a result, they were becoming pretty scared, even though some of them were fishermen, you remember who obviously are not the kind of men that usually get scared very easily, especially not out there on the water, because this was like their lake. This was their hometown fishing spot. They were used to being out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and they were probably used to being in storms. 
And yet I guess that actually might have been what was adding to their fear because they would have known what happened to people who were out on the sea in the middle of one of these kinds of whirlwinds. And so they came to Jesus in desperation. This feels like chaos to them as the winds are whistling by and the waves are crashing in. They're shouting at Jesus, Luke says, Master, Master, we're perishing. And I'm sure they were all screaming at this point. It's not like they would have sent a representative to Jesus politely, you know, to be like, Jesus, uh, excuse me, excuse me, you know, could you maybe wake up, please, if at all possible? Because they didn't have that kind of time. They all felt like they were going to die. And so they're all shouting, and they're probably all shouting different things, which is why each gospel writer records what they said a little differently. Luke's is the shortest, but Mark gives us a little more detail because he tells us someone said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Which gives us a glimpse of what was really going on in the disciples' hearts here as they're out on that boat looking at their circumstances and looking at Jesus asleep on the cushion. They're wondering whether or not he has the power to take care of them. And beyond that, they're wondering whether or not he really wants to. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus, don't you see what's happening here? Which I think illustrates one reason most of us might give as to why we're so hesitant and have a hard time joyfully obeying Jesus, even though we know we're supposed to. We can feel justified sometimes for not obeying Jesus. It's our circumstances, the ones that we're in, or even, you know, the ones that we're afraid of being in. I mean, we might not even be in a storm. It might just be the possibility of a storm. But that's enough, and we're scared. Even though we've gotten into the boat with Jesus, and we're his disciples, we're looking around us, and it seems frightening, or it seems like it has the potential of being frightening. And so we kind of feel justified about being hesitant. We wouldn't be so worried. We would obey. It's just our circumstances, you know, the world we're living in. It's like we're in the middle of a storm here. And so if you asked us, if we had to explain why we're worried, we would point to what's going on in our lives or what we think is going to go on in our lives if we obey Jesus. And you know, maybe some of us would take the next step and actually point at Jesus. Like, you know, it seems like he's sleeping. It feels like we, we are getting into this boat with Jesus. We have made this commitment to Jesus, and yet we're not sure we can count on Jesus as the storms are raging because maybe he's just going to be over there sleeping. And so what can we do, you know? And we mean that, like, what can we do? For some of us, I think it feels like fear and worry and hesitancy are our only possible reaction, actually. It feels valid. We don't even question it, really. I mean, what do you expect from me? You see the waves, right? You see, you see the water filling up our boat. This is not like a, a minor crisis that I'm talking about. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sleeping. Doesn't he care that we're perishing? I don't know if that's your perspective, if you felt that before, but that was certainly the disciples' perspective, the reason they would have given at that moment. And we can make this even a little more compelling, actually, if we fast forward a little and think about this story in light of what was going to happen to the disciples. And this is actually just a little preacher talk. One of the more challenging things about reading the Gospels or preaching the Gospels, because you have to think about this story 
from the perspective of the people in the story, but you also have to think about it from the perspective of the people originally reading the story, the people to whom Luke was writing. And Luke is writing, we know, the early church. And one of the things that was happening in the early church, of course, is that the gospel was going to Gentiles, people who were not Jews. And that was a mystery. Paul says that was something, was not something people expected. The way it was happening was new revelation. And the Jews, for the most part, were still rejecting Jesus. It didn't change after he died, really. And even here, for the disciples in this story, if you think about it, they're about to see Jesus get crucified. And they're going to be rejected and persecuted for following him. And so they were about to be called to do something that was very different than what they originally expected when they first started to follow Jesus. Because what they were expecting was that he was going to establish the kingdom of God on earth, like right then, which is part of why they left their families to follow him in the first place. And it's part of why they were always asking about which one of us is the greatest, because they were thinking Jesus was going to be an actual king who defeats Rome and rules over Israel. That is their expectation. And yet the reality is that most everyone they knew and loved was going to end up rejecting Jesus, and that the spiritual leaders they grew up listening to were going to crucify Jesus, and that they were going to want to kill anyone who was associated with Jesus. And so while the disciples would have originally been thinking they were going to be heroes in Israel, most of them are going to, be, they're going to end up being treated like traitors and called to take the gospel far from Israel to the Gentiles, which would have felt like a storm, you know? The, the early church must have felt like they were on this little boat with Jesus in the middle of this great big storm. And if you're the one being persecuted, and if your expectations are being turned upside down like this, you can see how it might have been very tempting to look at that storm that you're going through and what's happening and feel like maybe it's a judgment on Jesus. Like maybe this is a statement from God that something went wrong, that we were wrong about Jesus. And actually, if you just hit pause on this moment with Jesus sleeping in the boat in the middle of the storm, it is such a good illustration of why that question might have at first felt like a pretty good question, <laughs> like a, a, an actually, actually a good doubt, because this story that Luke's telling us is one that actually happened before in the Old Testament. And this is so cool. This is why we have this class on the, on the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, actually. Because if you're going to get the full impact of the New Testament, you really have to know what's going on in the Old. Because you remember how we talk about reading a gospel as being like watching a play on a stage with a movie going on in the back. And the movie in the back is the Old Testament. And so while Jesus and his disciples are up here on the stage doing things, and that's part of what we just walked through. There's a movie of scenes from the Old Testament going on in the background. And you kind of have to be watching both at the same time because once in a while, there's a scene on the movie screen from the Old Testament that is really similar to what's happening on the stage with Jesus. And that's actually what's happening here. And so can you think of any other prophet, maybe from the Old Testament, who had something to do with the Gentiles and was on a boat sleeping in the middle of a storm. I'm talking about Jonah, of course. And there are like three or four very specific things in this story that are almost the ex exact same 
as what was happening to Jonah. In fact, the disciples even say pretty much the same words as the captain of the boat back in Jonah. They use the same word, we are perishing. And what was the reason for the storm back in Jonah? Do you remember? Was Jonah doing the right thing or the wrong thing? The wrong thing. The, the storm had to do with Jonah not doing what God wanted him to do. He was trying to get out of obeying which ironically in that story was because he didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. And so Jesus here is doing almost the opposite because he's going to the Gentiles. And we're gonna see that in a big way in the book of Acts, but not just in the book of Acts. It's actually happening here in this very story, like literally, because he's crossing the lake to go to a region where there are all these Gentiles. This is like the one time in the gospels where Jesus visits uh, a part of the, of the area that was almost all Gentiles. And he's actually going to save and send a missionary to this region in the next story. And so, you know, if we just hit pause on this scene here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you could see how people could feel some uncertainty about obeying Jesus. I mean, look at what's happening. Right after Jesus holds up the faith of a Gentile, that centurion, right after Jesus says the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders are rejecting God's purpose, the Pharisees, right after Jesus gets into an argument with one of those Pharisees and says he is not forgiven, but the prostitute actually is, and right after, Jesus says that a lot of Israel is not going to be saved because they're not the good soil and that his family is going to be open to anyone who's willing to hear his word and respond. And right after Jesus crosses the lake to go to Gentiles, we see him sleeping in a storm just like Jonah. And so we might wonder, does that mean that Jesus, like Jonah, is not doing what God wanted. That's a very real question people might have been wondering in the early church as they see Paul get thrown into prison and Peter crucified upside down. And that's a very real question as we look at our world and we look at the Bible and we look at all these promises, we might feel like it's not working out exactly like we thought it would. And so even though we're in the boat with Jesus, we're so scared and we're so uncertain and we're so afraid to, to, to step out boldly in confidence and obedience to Jesus. And it kind of feels justified, like reasonable even. Like what else are we gonna do? Which is where this story gets interesting. If we hit the play button again, you know, we unpause this moment and turn from listening to the disciples as they're shouting at Jesus to looking at Jesus and this story from his perspective. Because the very first thing we see is that even though Jesus is in the same boat with these disciples, he's responding differently than the disciples. To start with, he's sleeping. And then even when he wakes up, it's obvious that he's not frightened in the least. And so a situation that feels so dangerous for the rest of the disciples is no cause for worry to Jesus. And I just love the matter of fact way Luke puts it in verse 24. And they went to, to him and, and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. Which of course you know is, is very different than how it went down for Jonah actually. Jonah had to get thrown in for the storm to calm down. But Jesus just speaks to the storm and we're gonna have to look at what that means 
and says about Jesus as God. But first, let's think about the, what the way Jesus responds says about him as a man. Because it says that fear, desperation, and questioning are not the only possible responses for the disciples in the middle of the storm. Because Jesus isn't freaking out the way they were at all. And so there is another option. And I know this is a little challenging, but I'm afraid a lot of times we give ourselves excuses because we're, we're just doing what everybody else seems to be doing, and we almost think that, that that's just us being human. And yet Jesus is a human, and, and the fact that he's sleeping reminds us that he's just as human as everyone else on that boat, and yet his response is the opposite. And you know, in case you think that's just Jesus, I mean, he's different, he's in a category all by himself, and of course he responded by being calm. We should look at what he says to his disciples in Luke 8, verse 25, because he said to them, where is your faith? Which you know is a rebuke. It's not just that he responded differently, it's that he expected they should have responded differently. And in Luke here, of course, it comes across as a gentle rebuke, but it's a rebuke. And the other gospel writers help us see that very clearly because the way Mark records it, Mark 4, verse 40, he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Which means what felt natural to them in that moment, fear, was not natural according to Jesus. Why, he says. In other words, what is the reason you're so afraid? which is actually not just a, a simple question for curiosity's sake, it's a rebuke. It's most definitely 100%, uh, what are you doing? In fact, the way Matthew puts it, it's even stronger, it's more direct. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Matthew 8, 28. And I love this because listen, there are lots of places you can go in this world where you can find people who are gonna be more than happy to give you an excuse for not doing what Jesus says. They're not even gonna ask why. And honestly, it's not just people in the world who will give you excuses either. Sometimes it's people who are in the same boat with you. Like with the disciples here, it's people who have left the crowd to follow Jesus and are in the same boat with you. And yet they'll give you all kinds of excuses for your fears and for your doubts and for your hesitancy in obeying Jesus. Like what else can you do? which is another reason why it's so important you come to a church where the word of God is being taught and you need as much of it as you can get because so often God's word says something so different than what we're hearing from everyone else. Like again here, where pretty much everyone else in the whole world would look at these disciples in the middle of a storm and say, we understand why you are afraid. And wouldn't even think to question that fear because really they think what other option is there when waves are crashing into your boat? What else can you do? How else can you feel? And if you think about this as kind of an illustration of what people later might have been wondering about Jesus, you can certainly imagine that almost everyone else would understand those doubts as well. Like maybe you should not live all out for Jesus because maybe the way the world looks means he's not who he says he was. And so don't you think you should just kind of stay in the boat and be a disciple if you have to, but be scared like your whole life and be hesitant and be uncertain? I mean, almost everyone can understand that, except Jesus, you know? Jesus doesn't understand that. Jesus asks why. Why are you so afraid? Like, this is a real question. And look, it's not because he's uncaring, and it's not because he's being mean here. It's not because he doesn't know what it's like to be a human and to struggle with fear, but it's because he knows 
that in this situation, their response was not really revealing so much about their circumstances as much as it was revealing something about themselves instead. In other words, it wasn't the storm that was scaring them, and it wasn't the storm that was causing them to question Jesus. The storm was just revealing some things about themselves. And this is where this gets a little convicting, because we often wonder what our circumstances reveal about God. But we should think about what our response to our circumstances is revealing about us. And Jesus explains pretty directly what it's revealing in verse 25 when he says, where is your faith? That is the problem. And in Mark, like I said, it's even more direct. He says, have you no faith? And in Matthew, oh, you of little faith. And so obviously a lack of faith is the problem. And yet we have to think about what Jesus means there. Because at first, honestly, it can seem kind of confusing. Like, wait, is it? really a lack of faith to experience feelings of fear in the middle of a storm. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, I don't think Jesus is saying, if you have feelings of fear when you're in dangerous situations, that is always a lack of faith because there's a natural kind of fear that is helpful and keeps you from doing stupid things and from danger. But listen to me now, I think Jesus is saying that natural fear becomes sinful when it causes you to doubt God's goodness when it takes control of you. And also, I think here, when your responses to life's circumstances are not grounded in and flowing out of the realities that have been revealed in God's word. And I know that's a little long, but what I mean is that on almost any other day and in almost any other storm, the disciples' response would have been natural if they had been out there fishing by themselves. But they, they weren't out there fishing by themselves. Jesus was in their boat, like physically in their boat with them. And they were following Jesus because they believed he was going to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And obviously God's promised deliverer, who he was sending to fix all the problems in the world, wasn't going to die on, on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. See what I'm saying? These weren't just any old fishermen out there trying to stay alive that day. These were followers of Jesus who heard Jesus's word and saw Jesus's power and knew Jesus was the Messiah. And so it's not a, a big deal if they felt some natural fear as a storm was approaching, but that natural fear should not have gripped them to the point where they felt this kind of hopelessness and desperation and started questioning God's goodness. Because at some point their faith should have kicked in and they should have thought to themselves, wait a second, wait a second. If Jesus really is who he's claiming to be, if he really is God's plan for saving the whole world, then God is not going to let his great plan be ruined because somehow the Messiah got tired and fell asleep on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and died as a result. But they didn't. That's the thing. They, they didn't. They let their fear take control instead. And that fear was wrong for them, not because there was something inherently wrong with being scared when you think you're gonna drown, but because at that moment, that reaction didn't match up with the realities that God had revealed in his word. And Jesus wants them to understand that. And you as well. Because there are lots of things in this world that are frightening and confusing. And we are human. And so we're gonna experience emotions like everyone else. But if we allow fear to cause us to start thinking and acting 
in ways that don't line up with what God has clearly revealed in his word, it's wrong for us as well. It is sin. And so if we know what God wants us to do, and yet we're trying to justify our slowness to obey by pointing to our circumstances, yes, there may be lots of people out there who would agree, and you can find them. But Jesus would call you to be careful not to make excuses and to start exercising your faith instead. And of course, I'm, I'm not talking about a silly faith now, so don't misunderstand. Because I'm not talking about acting like following Jesus is always easy and that everything's going to go great for you right now. I'm not talking about some sort of superficial positivity or something. Because Jesus isn't actually saying that every time his followers get into a boat and there is a storm, they don't have to worry because that storm's not going to hurt them. Because there have been lots of Christians who have gotten under boats and they ended up being drowned. The, the, the lack of faith on the disciples' part was not that they could never drown in a storm ever. It was that God had revealed in the scriptures what the Messiah would do, and Jesus wouldn't have been able to do it if the boat had sunk with all of them in it. And in a similar way, a lack of faith on our part is not when we say, I don't know if obeying Jesus is going to make my life easier. Because the reality is, it might not. It might not. The lack of faith is when we start getting so worried about our life becoming more difficult that we start thinking and acting like we're not going to rise from the dead. And that we get angry at God and grumble against God and refuse to obey God and stop thinking and acting like we are people who are going to spend billions and billions of years in heaven with him. I mean, are you catching this? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because if you're having trouble joyfully and courageously obeying God, if you're hearing but not doing and you're feeling like it's kind of valid because of your circumstances, this story says, you better look again because the problem might not be your circumstances. The problem might be that you are not trusting that God is going to be faithful to the plan he laid out in scripture. And so it's okay. It's normal to see the storm. But you can't let the storm cause you to lose sight of Jesus. And that's really the issue. No one is saying that you can't look at your life and recognize the challenges. But allowing that to stop you from doing what God says is sin. And to stop you from doing it joyfully is sin because it's not about your circumstances. It's about Jesus. It's about faith in Jesus. Can Jesus do, will Jesus do what God promised he would? And so instead of blaming your circumstances for your fear and uncertainty and hesitancy, you need to look deeper into your heart and ask, where is my faith? Why am I not trusting what God said about how he's seeking my good, about what he said about what he's doing in and through Jesus? Because so often that's the real problem. And so you know the solution's not going to be easier circumstances if that's the problem. But really getting to know Jesus, that's what's going to produce courageous obedience. Because if you look at these disciples, you have to ask, why, why were they having such a hard time exercising faith? I mean, they're fearing because they're lacking faith, but why did they have such a lack of faith? It's not the storm. It's because they didn't really know Jesus. 
And I don't mean, obviously, that they didn't know anything about Jesus, because they did. And I, I don't mean that they didn't have a relationship with Jesus, because they did. They had had some big moments already. They had stepped out. They were in a boat with Jesus. And so the problem's not that they were totally ignorant of Jesus or that they weren't moving in the right direction with Jesus. The problem is that they allowed the storm to cause them to lose sight of Jesus. And so while they might have been able to say some of the right things about Jesus on dry ground, those facts weren't gripping their hearts in the middle of the storm. And the same is true as you go through difficulties as well. When obeying seems frightening, that is a moment for you. Because that moment is revealing something about your actual knowledge of Jesus. If you know what you think you know. You need to look at how you're responding and what that response reveals about your faith. And if you're having a hard time exercising your faith, you have to ask why. And it may be that even though you know a lot of things about Jesus and you're maybe moving in the right direction with Jesus, at that moment at least, you're not really appreciating Jesus. If we're going around controlled by sinful fear of our circumstances or if we're allowing a fear of future difficult circumstances to keep us from joyfully obeying Jesus, it's, it's because we're not gripped by a holy fear of Jesus. You can mark that down. That's, that's so important. I just love verse 25. And he said to them, where is your faith? And what does it say next? And they were afraid. Because look at that for a minute. Stop there. What exactly are they afraid of now? Because that's not they were afraid because of the storm. <laughs> because the storm is over. They had been afraid of the storm. That's why they were freaking out. But obviously the storm is over. Everything is calm now, which you would think would be a relief. But instead, they are more scared than they were before because they're finally coming face to face with the reality of Jesus, verse 25. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And so it's, it's kind of ironic that the disciples were in the middle of this storm freaking out about some waves that are crashing into their boat as they are totally missing the one truly scary, scary thing, which is that they're in the same boat as God. God's in their boat. And it's kind of fun to watch this play out, this scene, because you can just imagine a few minutes before how absolutely chaotic everything was with all these wild waves and this little boat and all these people screaming until Jesus gets up and looks out at the water and rebukes the wind and the waves. Like, stop, he says. And they listen, and in an instant, everything is calm. And of course, that's a big affirmation of the fact that Jesus is God because only God has that kind of control over the physical universe. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Everyone else has to pray to God when they're in a storm. It's only God that can speak to storms and have them listen, which is also part of why we're certain that Jesus is going to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament and that his mission really is to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what God the Father wanted to happen because he's not Jonah, you know? He's not, he's, he's not just another prophet, Jesus. And that reality is just beginning to dawn 
on the disciples. And it's like the first step towards joyful, courageous obedience and how they're going to be able to take the gospel out after Jesus gets crucified. Because it's not that they start denying reality and pretend like it's easy or exactly how they want things to go or that we do either. It's not that we start ignoring the fact that things are scary in this world and that things seem like they're a mess. It's not that we start closing our eyes to reality. It's that we realize who's in our boat. (laughs) That's why we should obey joyfully if we're Christians. Because we believe God has a plan to fix absolutely everything that's broken in our lives and in this universe through Jesus, which is a reality that should change us. It should give us confidence. Unfortunately, though, we know all too often it doesn't, and instead we go through life half-heartedly obeying, uncertain, hesitant, scared. And if you ask us why, a lot of times, like the disciples, we would point to our circumstances. What else can we do? You see all this, which is why we need to hear Jesus as he asks us. Why are you so afraid? Because it's not that he's saying the storms aren't scary. It's just that he's more powerful than any storm. The Jesus we are following is the Jesus who speaks and storms listen. The Jesus we're following is the God who's in absolute and complete control, even when it looks like he might be sleeping. And so we know for sure that everything God said, he's going to accomplish through Jesus. He's going to accomplish through Jesus. And what does he want from us right now? He wants us to believe. It's our job to trust him and obey, to hear what he says and do it quickly and joyfully and courageously. And if we aren't, let's call that what it is. Let's stop making excuses. Because there is a savior for sinners. Let's take our worries, let's take our fears, let's take take our excuses to Jesus as sin. Call it sin, repent of it as sin, and ask him to change us and transform us and give us courage just like he did these disciples, because he can do that. He has done that. And while we don't want to minimize the difficulties of life, we also don't want to use the difficulties of life as as an excuse for problems in our relationship with Jesus. And we should cry out to God to increase our faith and increase our knowledge of Jesus, which is actually probably what he's intending to do in the middle of the difficulty of your life. I mean, that's why he had you get into the boat and go into the middle of the storm. He's wanting to help you come to Jesus and be amazed by Jesus. And instead of allowing the storms to cause you to question Jesus, you should rejoice in the fact that God has a plan to use all these storms and all these difficulties to glorify Jesus and to cause the whole earth to be filled with his glory. And say with the disciples, Who then is this? Who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking through your word. Lord, we're frail humans. We've stepped out to follow you, but we are so often filled with uncertainty and doubt and Our uncertainties and doubts, they feel so justified to us. But Lord, please, please help us to look up 
from our circumstances and to look into your face, Jesus, and be amazed and to know that we're not alone in, in this boat any more than the disciples were alone back then. You, you are with us. You're the God who will never forsake us. And so, Lord, help us just to put our hand in yours and step out joyfully in obedience. When we hear you speak, Lord, we don't want to make excuses. Uh, we want to be a people who obey. And we pray this in your name. Amen.